you if you turn to Matthew 10 now on on Sunday Robert asked me about some verses and said could could we do a thing on them um, and 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 so tonight we will um, I haven't had time to prepare properly so in many ways I'm just going to be thinking out loud but uh, Matthew chapter t uh, 10 and um, we'll start reading verse 34 they're fairly well-known words of Jesus um, but it tends to be an example of these are sort of like verses that you won't hear too much of. You don't get many people who will actually read these verses out and explain what they mean. because uh, Not because they're heavy going or difficult to understand, but because it's a little bit close to the edge for some people. So Matthew chapter 10 and, and verse 34, and this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, now, I remember some years ago, um, a Christian lady says to me, she was a, a spirit-filled Christian, uh, and she went to an Anglican church in Suffolk, and uh, she said to me, and I think it was significant that she said it to me, because she was definitely trying to get something across to me, and, and, and she said something I'll never forget, because it's eminently quotable. And what she said is this, Beresford, you'll always know when something has been said or done in the power of the Holy Spirit, because no one will be upset. Now, that could not be more wrong. The sadness is, though, she, however, totally believed it. All right. And uh, hers was a belief that, because God is love, all right, wherever you hit up against God, you hit up against his love. Now, I would agree with that, 100%. In whatever way anybody ever hits up against God, they hit up against love. Why? Because God is love. And so her argument was that because God is love, and therefore any time you hit up against God, you're going to hit up against his love. Because love is so beautiful, because love is so all-encompassing, because love is so holy and righteous, it will never bring forth a bad reaction. And bad reactions only happen where there isn't love. Now, where her thinking was totally wrong wasn't about God and his love. Where her thinking was totally wrong was about people hitting up against God's love. Because the problem is that everything God does is love, but the human heart is sinful and has a battle with God, including his love. So therefore, what she was really failing to understand is that people are sinners. Now obviously, if you weren't a sinner, wherever you hit up against love, you'd respond favourably. But because people are sinful, very often hitting up even against God's love is going to set off a bad reaction. But you see, very often in the churches, people, what they want and what they home in on 
is that God's love and peace equals that the boat is never gets rocked. There'll never be trouble, all right? And uh, one of the, the things that you'll find that Christians fear above all else is division. One of the great phobias in the church is division, all right? And uh, sort of like, it's the big taboo, all right? And you have to try and keep everybody happy. You have to try and keep everyone on an even keel. Because the last thing that most Christians want in their churches is trouble. They're kind of terrified of it. Almost as if if a church has trouble, there's something desperately wrong, all right? Now, as a balance to that, we here have Jesus saying, uh, this lovely, smooth, lovey-dovey, isn't it wonderful thing that most Christians want in their churches. You know, how most Christians talk about Christianity, I gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and you know, sort of like, you know, if someone loves you, you'll never get upset, etc., etc. In contradistinction to that, we have Jesus here saying, don't think that I've come to do that, because I haven't. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. All right. Now, this tells us something about Jesus that is vitally important for us to understand. Uh, the peace that most churches want is the peace in a graveyard. They want everything undisturbed, all right? And the last thing they want is trouble, all right? But what Jesus says is that rather than coming to bring that peace, that sort of peace, I've actually come to bring a sword. Now, a sword is an offensive weapon, all right? And Jesus says, that is what I have come to bring. And then he talks about the fact that he is directly going to be turning families against each other. He says that, I have come to set a man against his mother. Blah, blah, blah. Now, this is what Jesus said. Now, one of the things that you'll hear uh, from most Christians is that usually, if a church ever splits or you get walkouts or things like this, this is always terrible and, you know, Christians throw their arms up in horror because we're all supposed to be one in the spirit. I mean, this is the watchword today, you know, we're one in the spirit, okay? Um, and that when you get, you know, like walkouts or churches dividing, what you'll find is that they'll always say the only thing that ever divides a church is Satan that Satan is the divider. Satan is the one who splits churches. Satan is the one who causes people to be set against each other. Now, what I want to show you is that the truth of the matter is that Jesus does divide people and that we're going to see in the Bible quite clearly that the Bible teaches that he does. Now, if you... and and you know, we'll actually see why he does. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, and the first few verses in the Bible, I just want to start by establishing a principle about God himself. The first few verses in the Bible, alright? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, separated, divide. If you separate something, you divide it. 
Now here we see in the very act of God creating that he had to start dividing one thing off from another right from the start. Keep going, God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and separated, divided, all right, the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above. Now, can you see here that in creating, God has to divide, all right? Now go over into Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, sorry, Matthew chapter 25. And uh, these verses actually talk about at the end of the Great Tribulation, at the Second Coming. But we'll just look what, um, what Jesus does here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, so this is a verse about what Jesus does, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And uh, that's Matthew 25, Matthew 25, verse 31. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another. And of course, what's happening here is he's separating the unbelievers from the believers. He's dividing them. Here's he. He's dividing things into their proper categories. Because God is a God of order. I mean, obviously, he wanted an ordered universe. Uh, he wanted there to be day and night. So, therefore, he had to use light to divide the day off from the night, you see. And here, because he's a God of order, he separates our unbelievers and divides them off from people who follow him. All right. So, what we're seeing here is that God as part of everything he does, there is a time for him to divide. And what we see here is that Jesus puts it like this, I will divide by bringing a sword. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, we've got to ask, what is this sword that creates the division that Jesus is promising that he will cause? And this is a direct promise. Jesus is going to create division of certain kinds. And he's going to do it with a sword. So you've got to ask, what is the sword and what is the division all about? Well, if you go to Ephesians chapter 6, to actually find out exactly what this sword is that he's talking about. Oh no, first of all, before you do that, go to Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Um... And you have here the vision that John receives of Jesus in all his glory. And uh, in verses like 12 to 16, you've got a description, John describing what Jesus was like when Jesus revealed himself to him. But in verse 16, we read this. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword. So there we have the sword that Jesus brought with him. Alright? I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. The sword is going to divide in certain ways. Now, what is this sword? 
of Jesus? Here, it's coming out of his mouth. So there's a clue. With a mouth, you speak. Now then, go over into Ephesians chapter 6. And you know this, you, you've got the thing about the armour of God. Um, and in Ephesians chapter 6, let's see, we'll start from uh, verse 17. And he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right, now there we have an explicit statement. We've seen that Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword. And this sword is going to divide in a particular way that I must do. The result of that is that at times even families are going to be against each other. And this dividing he does with a sword. We saw that when John saw him in all his glory, there was a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. And here we have the explicit statement that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, there, there's a very clear example of Jesus being God, all right? Because the sword was coming out of his mouth, but the sword is the Word of God, because Jesus is God, all right? Now, go over into Hebrews, <clears throat> and we can just get a little bit more detailed here and start to understand the nature of the division, all right, that Jesus causes. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, six, 4, <clears throat> and uh, in verse 12 we read this. For the word of God is living and active. Now, the word of God is living and active because when God's word goes out, if the power of the Holy Spirit accompanies it, all right, then obviously it's a word that is doing a work in people. There's a divine power, the power of the Holy Spirit himself. So the word of God is alive and active. It does things. It's not just like reading a Charles Dickens novel or something. When the word of God himself goes out, it goes out in the power of the Holy Spirit to do something in whoever's hearing it. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So here we have it again, the Word of God being the sword of the Spirit. Now look at what this sword of the Spirit actually does. You've got here piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what he's saying is this, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, is specifically there to divide something, to separate two things out of one, all right? Now then look, he says, soul and spirit. Now what, what does that mean, soul and spirit? Well, he talks of joint and marrow. Now that gives us the clue. In the body, I mean here, joints is talking about bones. Marrow is the jelly inside the bones, all right? Like marrow bone jelly, you know, sort of like the secret ingredient in pal, isn't it? And of course, the thing is that a joint, a bone, is, is a dead thing. A bone of itself is not alive. But the marrow inside of the bone is alive. Can you see? the life of the body is transmitted to the joints through the marrow. So what he's saying here is that joints, the skeleton of a body, is dead inert matter. But the marrow inside 
of the joints, that has got the life of the body in it. So that what we've got here, we've got basically soul and spirit, a dead thing and an alive thing. Alright, that's the idea here. All right. Now what it's saying here is that soul is referring merely to us human beings in our natural state, the sinful nature. Purely us, like before we knew the Lord, but having come to know the Lord, we've still got an old nature. The sinful nature is still there. Whereas spirit is referring to the fact that because we're one with Jesus, we have new life in us. The new nature is inside us because we're one with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying, in exactly the same way that the joints are dead, but the marrow inside them, there's life. In exactly the same way, us in the natural, or the sinful nature, is dead, but the life in us is the new nature. It's Jesus himself. So what the Word of God actually does is it separates out and reveals clearly that which is merely of the human and sinful nature. Can you see? Now, the great problem is that very often, the sinful nature can actually be doing the works of God. The sinful nature can look like it's alive. I mean, a joint can look like it's alive. I mean, look at that movement in my leg. Can you see? But the joint isn't alive, it's the marrow inside of it. Now, in the same way, the sinful nature can put on a really good show of being good or being religious or being kind or being patient or whatever. But what the writer is saying here is that it is absolutely stone bonker dead. Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, the sinful nature or the soul as used here, dwells no good thing. All right? And yet the sinful nature will put on a very good show of being good. And because our hearts are deceitful, because we're self-righteous, we want to believe ourselves to be good. So what we have here is that the Word of God is there to actually reveal that which, regardless what it looks like, is actually the sinful nature. And the Word of God comes in like a sword and it slices it off gets it to one side so it can be seen in all its glaring horror, sin. A sword divides. I mean, the Romans used to chop people's head off with a sword. And, uh, you know, I mean, sort of like people at this time when the Bible were written, they were very aware of that, you know, because, I mean, the Romans, if they didn't crucify you, they chopped your head off. I mean, John the Baptist, he lost his head, didn't he? Quite literally. Now, that is a very definite dividing you know, isn't it? I mean, sort of like how, you know, John the Baptist ended up in two bits, head and body. The sword divided him. All right. So what we've got here is that in doing this, this sword of the spirit, okay, it, it divides, it slices, it separates between that which is of the Lord in someone and that which is of their sinful nature. And it separates the two and reveals them absolutely clearly. All right. But of course, where it reveals sin, the sinful nature, it reveals it in all its horror.
And then it goes on to say that this sword also is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A discerner of the, th the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Because again, people can look good on the outside. But we all know, don't we, that you can do something that looks good and it is being done for totally sinful reasons and motives. So an outward good action can actually stink when it comes to what is motivating it. You see what I mean? Now, the Word of God comes in and what it does, basically, in people's lives, be it non-Christians, be it non-Christians, or be it us, God's people, the sword of the Spirit comes in, it slices straight through that outward veneer of goodness and religiosity or whatever of the sinful nature, splits it right down the middle, alright, and reveals it for what it is, sin, and then calls for repentance, alright. Now, of course, when you understand that that is precisely what Jesus has come to do, to reveal sin and in people recognising it and repenting of it, Jesus can then save them. Remember, Jesus said, I haven't come to condemn the world, I've come to save the world. But the thing is, in order for someone to be saved, they've got to realise that they need to be saved from something. And in order to realise that you're to be saved from the lake of fire, you've got to understand the reason you were going there in the first place, and it's because of sin. So therefore, Jesus, even when he isn't wanting to condemn the world, but to save it, someone can only be saved if they come to the realisation of the guilt of their sin. So therefore, the Word of God cuts in and reveals the guilt of people's sin. Where they thought they were righteous, the Word of God comes in and says, you're a stench in God's nostrils. That is what the Word of God does. And then even once we are saved, right, you recognise that, I'm a sinner, Lord save me, blah, blah, blah. Now in following the Lord, what does the Lord want to do now? Clean us up. Well, I mean, if you're going to attack your kitchen, have a good clean up, what's the first thing you've got to do before you clean a kitchen? You've got to identify where the dirt is. You see? So therefore, in our lives, the Lord, through the sword of the Spirit, reveals all the things in us, bit by bit, that he wants to clean up. So basically, what Jesus is saying, because primarily, his word and his presence and his power and his love will always show up sin, therefore, even though his intentions are absolutely of love and wanting to save people and that's all, nevertheless, the problem comes in when people refuse to come clean about what the sword of the Spirit has revealed in them and they react against it. All right. So therefore, the kind of division that Jesus is talking about is the reaction of people who rather than coming clean and repenting of their sins will rather fight against it and do whatever is needful in order for them to not have to admit how wrong they are. Now, if you just go back to the Matthew thing, 
Matthew chapter 10. And let's really understand how far this can go sometimes. We're seeing that where you get God's word, <coughs> all right, you're going to get a bad reaction from people who aren't willing to repent of the sin that the sword of the Spirit is revealing. All right. So therefore, you could understand that, i.e. if someone goes along to a fellowship meeting and they sit there and, and they're in a Bible study and someone is speaking from the Word of God, you can understand, all right, that they're, they're hearing God's Word, the sword of the Spirit is doing its job. Therefore, all right, they might get mad. But of course it goes much further than that because one of the things that Paul says in Corinthians is that a Christian is a living epistle, a living letter. I.e., if you've got a Christian who's following the Lord, right, then the truth of what the Word of God teaches is being lived out in their lives. Is he? So that they're becoming a walking epistle. If you like, a walking Bible. The information contained in this Bible can be seen in the life of someone who's following Jesus. Now, we've already seen that wherever God's word goes out, the power of the Holy Spirit is there to apply it to people's lives. So the word of God goes out and the Holy Spirit convicts. But the only reason that the word of God works like that is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in exactly the same way, the Holy Spirit does a work through people who are following Jesus. Because in exactly the same way, someone speaks the word, he's preaching the gospel, all right? the convicting power of the Holy Spirit goes out. But if that person is living the gospel as well, then their mere presence will be being used by the Holy Spirit as a means of convicting people. Do you see the point? So if you speak, people will come under the influence of the sword of the Spirit. But if you're living what you're speaking as well, even when your mouth is closed and you're just living, the power of the Holy Spirit will be going out convicting people of their sin. And here's the problem. That means that the mere presence of a disciple amongst people who are not willing to confess their sins, be they unbelievers or be they out of fellowship Christians, or sometimes the mere presence of that disciple is going to be at times intolerable for them. Why? Because the whole time the Holy Spirit is convicting them of their sin. Can you see? Your life amongst people is going to be you're walking along and the Holy Spirit is you're walking maybe through a room. He's got his sword out and he's going shh, 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 to everyone as you walk past. That's the principle. Can you see? So primarily the gospel has to be spoken to people. Speak the word of God in the power of the Spirit, and the sword of the Spirit is doing its work. It's slicing them up. But even when you're not speaking, if you're a disciple, then often the merely the way you live, the way you live, your mere proximity to people can have the same effect. They're going to be being convicted for their sins. And that is often why, Je well, here Jesus really homes in amongst families amongst families, and saying that if you get converted, 
then it may mean, if you follow me, that you're going to find yourself at loggerheads with your family, i.e. with the people you're closest to. Because think about it, you've got a, a family, they're not following the Lord. Then suddenly one of them becomes a disciple. Into that close family, all that, those blood ties or whatever, into that family situation, suddenly through one of the family is introduced the sword of the Spirit slicing up people's sin, convicting them, making them feel awful. Now then, one or one, there are two ways all right, those people are able to respond. Stand convicted, admit their sins and become a Christian, no problem, that's brilliant. Or, people, if someone is the means of demonstrating to you that you're wrong, but you're not willing to admit that you're wrong, the basic instinct of the sinful nature is to discredit the person who's having that effect on you. Having morally convinced yourself that they're an evil wretch, you then think, well, I mean, such an evil person couldn't possibly, you know, sort of like, they're worse than me, I don't have to listen to what they say. Now, that is the universal response of the sinful nature to people who are being used as a channel for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. And this is precisely why Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I, that we've got to realise that if we really are a disciple of Jesus, then that means that the Holy Spirit can do basically anything he likes through us. And one of the things that he often does, not necessarily constantly, not necessarily 24 hours a day, but there will certainly be times that what he will do every now and then is it's almost as if he'll jump out of you at any point onto someone else with the sword of the Spirit and slice them up a bit. Because he wants them to repent of their sins and get right with Jesus. But because you are the channel for that, if those people don't want to get right with God and aren't willing to come clean about their sins, if that's how they feel, then they will identify you as their source of discomfort. And therefore, it is you they will make to pay for having that effect on them. And so Jesus said, settle it, that if you're going to follow me, you never know when this kind of principle is going to work. You never, you know, you could lose any friend. Can you say? Because if the sword of the Spirit is working through you, then at any time, without warning, someone who maybe you've got on fine with will suddenly turn against you. The reason being, you have been a channel to convict them of sin that they are not willing to repent of. But they will see you as the aggressor. They will see it as being your fault. They will see you as being the source of their discomfort. And they'll want to deal with you. And the very best way to do it, as I say, is rip someone to shreds in your own mind, convince yourself that they're a nutter or, or, or that they're evil or, or something like that, and then you don't have to listen to what they say. I mean, it's like the Pharisees. I mean, Jesus' mere presence was intolerable to them because they were such hypocrites. It was intolerable. But the way they had to get out of it is to try and convince people that Jesus was satanic. Is he? 
Because having established that Jesus was satanic, obviously if someone is satanic, you don't have to do what they say. And so that is how the Pharisees dealt with the problem. Let's just actually have a look at the effect, the effect of the sword of the Spirit uh, through various people's lives. If you go to um, uh, Mark, Mark chapter 12, we'll see it first in Jesus' life, and, uh, and then we'll see it in someone else's life. All right. And uh, in Mark chapter 12, um, now let's see, let's start with, um, yeah, let's, let's start with verse 13, all right? Now then, <clears throat> they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to entrap him in his talk, all right? They wanted to try and trip him up. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care for no men, for you Hang on, yeah, for you do not regard the position of men, but truly teach the way of God. Now this is real, this is real schmaltzy stuff here. I mean, this is real hypocrisy, because what they're doing is that, you know, they say, Jesus, we know you're a great teacher, we, we know that you don't care about what, you, you just say whatever you think is true, and they're kind of building him up, ready to entrap him. Now look at this. They say to him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now the whole point about this, because um, Israel had been occupied by the Roman army, all right, um, it was kind of, you know, sort of like the Jews did not enjoy paying taxes to Caesar. Now what they're trying to do here, all right, is that if Jesus said, I mean, in answer to the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If Jesus had said, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees would have then tried to make him out as a Roman lover, you know, sort of someone who, you know, maybe even a quizzling, a, a, a traitor. But if Jesus has said, no, it's not lawful to pay your taxes to Caesar, they would have reported him to the Romans for being a troublemaker. And so they're trying to catch Jesus out. They're trying to make Jesus make a personal statement about the rightness or the wrongness of the Roman Empire. Now, if Jesus has said the Roman Empire was right, the Jews would have, you know, thought they're, you know, he's not one of us. If Jesus has said that the Romans were wrong, then the Pharisees would have been straight off to a captain of the guard saying, you've got a troublemaker. Now, look how Jesus deals with the situation. Knowing their hypocrisy, now that was the start of it. Jesus knew full well you know, what, what these questions were. They were merely trying to trip him up. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a coin and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription and inscription is this. They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What a perfect answer to the question. Jesus answered their question in a way that no one could have any problems with, but without falling into the trap that they set. And look, and it says, and they were amazed at him. All right. Now, what follows in the next verses, all right, um, is that the Sadducees came along. Now, the Sadducees were Jews, but they were kind of like the bishops of Durham. 
Uh, they didn't believe in resurrection from the dead or the afterlife or stuff like that, all right? So what they wanted to do, they wanted to try and catch Jesus out because he was a Bible believer, all right? So what he's saying is that um, under the law, if a woman was married to a bloke and the bloke died, then if the bloke had a brother who was free, the brother had the option of marrying her so that, you know, sort of she was you know, sort of cared for. So what they're saying is, all right, they ask him, look, you've got, um, well, let's actually read it. The, uh, the Sadducees came to him and asked him, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the wife and raise up children for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, he left no children. The second took her and died, leaving no children. The third likewise, and the seven left no children. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? So they're putting to him a story about a girl who had been married to seven men in the same family. And they're saying, well, Jesus, if there's an afterlife, well, come on, whose wife is she going to be? You know, you see the smile on their face. They think they've got him here, you see. Now, look, Jesus said to them, is not this why you were wrong? I mean, Jesus didn't mince words. He started his answer by saying you're wrong, <laughs> all right? That you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So he's saying, look, in the eternal state, there's no marriage for a start. Your question is a stupid question, all right? Sneer at them, basically. And he says, and as for the dead being raised, you see, because the Sadducees didn't believe that the dead were raised. They believed in God. They believed in Jehovah. They would say Jehovah is our God. All right, we are, you know, Jewish. But they didn't believe in things like being raised from the dead and stuff like that. And he says, look, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, what Jesus is showing them is this. When, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And the Sadducees knew and believed that. But the point was, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had been dead for years before God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And Jesus is saying, the idea of having a God of the dead is silly. How can a God be someone's God if the person doesn't exist anymore? God can only say he is the God of someone if that person is still alive, if that person still exists. So the Sadducees, they said, no one is raised from the dead. There's no afterlife. When you die, that's it, you're gone. But they also believed that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so Jesus shows them here quite clearly how stupid they were being. All right. So he shuts them up. Now, look at this. And one of the scribes came up, well, okay, right, we'll go through it. But just go through to verse 34, because then a third lot came up. Uh, and after that, no one dared to ask him any question. No one dared. 
Because the reason was they keep trying to trap him because they wanted to expose him. They wanted to get out of admitting that he was right. But every time they tried to trap him or demean him or make him look stupid, Jesus threw it back on them and they were the ones who looked daft and they were the ones who were exposed for the sinners that they were. And it got to the point where they didn't dare ask him any more at all. And it was twofold. One, it made them look stupid and they didn't want to look stupid. But secondly, every approach they made to Jesus was convicting them of sin so much they could hardly bear it. Because as soon as they got near Jesus, that sword of the Spirit was like that, and exposing their sinfulness. And they hated it. Go into Luke, and let's, let's just look at something that um, happened to Jesus fairly early on, at the start of his ministry. And uh, in Luke chapter 4. <coughs> and this is interesting, because this was when Jesus went back to Nazareth, where he was brought up. So all these people knew him as a kid. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, as his custom was on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. Now basically what happens is, he reads the scripture for the day. Having read it, he then proves to, him, to them that he was the fulfilment of it. Now go... Go down to verse 28, all right? Jesus finishes his little teaching. Now look at this. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were livid. They were beside themselves. They were so angry because Jesus had used the sword of the Spirit against them so expertly that they were in tatters. And they were livid, because they weren't willing to repent of their sins. Look, and they rose up and put him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down headlong. And they were so angry with what Jesus had said, that they wanted to kill him. That's exactly, They dragged him out of the synagogue and went to throw him off a cliff. However, Jesus escaped from them. But can you see the reaction of people when the sword of the Spirit does its work in their lives, but they're not willing to come clean about the sin that the Word of God has exposed in them. If you just go over to Acts, because uh, a lot of Christians will say, oh yes, but that's Jesus. All right. Um, now that may well have been Jesus, but uh, if Jesus is living in us, then there are going to be times when we can expect the same. Now, if you find Acts chapter 6, um, we'll start reading from verse 8. And this is just about Stephen. He was a deacon in the Jerusalem church. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, arose and disputed with Stephen. So Stephen has been teaching them. And all these learned people, they're disputing with Stephen. They're arguing back. They're trying to demonstrate to him that he's wrong. Now look what it says. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Can you see it? Because when people hit up against the sword of the spirit, 
Because it's the word of God, and because the word of God is the truth, you cannot withstand it. You cannot get round it. Uh, you're in the position of a dog between four trees. You haven't got a leg to stand on. Can you see? There is no disputing the word of God, because it's true. You can have no argument with the truth. There is no argument with the truth. And here, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, the point is that God's word spoken is wisdom. It's as simple as that. And God's word lived is wisdom. So this is the wisdom of God. Now then, from there, we actually get a record, the end of chapter 6 and through chapter 7, to a little sermon that Stephen preached to them, all right? But come down to verse uh, chapter 7 and verse 54. Now look at this. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth against him. And they then proceeded to stone him to death. But can you see the picture? Enraged, grinding their teeth. They would have been swearing. They would have been making all kinds of funny noises. They would have been red in the face because they were so angry. And the reason they were so angry was because their sin was being exposed. But they weren't willing to repent of their sins, so what do they do? They attack the means by which their sins were exposed in the first place. They attack Stephen, who was the channel of the Holy Spirit. So what we're seeing is that obviously God, when he brings the sword of the Spirit to bear, it's going to get reaction from people, and sometimes very, very strong. And it's going to divide people off, because those who have been convicted are very often going to end up very much in a hate thing against those that God has actually used to convict them. But if you go over into 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, And let's actually see this working amongst Christians. But more than that, let's actually see Paul expecting it to work amongst Christians. Uh, now, earlier on in the first couple of chapters, Paul has dealt with division in the sense that the Corinthians, what they were doing um, is that they were getting together in little bands and uh, sort of like you'd have a little group of people over here and they were saying, we're loyal to the Apostle Peter, all right? So there'd be the Peter party. <laughs> and there'd be another lot who say, oh, no, 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 we're, we're going with Paul. No, we're, we're Paul's men, all right? So you've got the Paul party, all right? And I think that, you know, if there were anyone, you know, sort of following the Virgin Mary, they'd have Peter, Paul and Mary. But, I, you know, but they... And then there were the super spiritual ones and they were saying, oh, no, but of course, we're with Jesus, you see. Now, of course, what was happening here is that you had a church where all your little cliques, all the people who got on, got together, and they declared war on all the other groups of people that they didn't like, but they put a spiritual veneer on it, you know, by saying, look, we're the really spiritual group, because we're into this teaching, yeah. and there'd be another group, and, and they wouldn't talk to each other. Now, obviously, Paul writes them and said, look, that is, is sheer sinful nature, all right? Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, um, He's now talking about the love feast, all right, the Lord's Supper, the fellowship meal. Uh, now, 
in verse 18, he says this. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear that there are divisions amongst you. And I partly believe it. Now, look at this, verse 15. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. Now, isn't that fascinating, what Paul says? He says, of course, there must be divisions amongst you. Because if you've got a church, and if you've got a kind of a, just an homogenous crowd of people, where some are genuinely following the law, they're real disciples. And others, all right, yeah, they're Christians, but they're not disciples, and they're up to all kinds of no good, all right? When everyone is just one mass, I mean, that's hopeless, isn't it? You don't know who is who. Who can you trust? And so what Paul says, when you get divisions, he's saying this is good, because then, when you've got a group over here and a group over there, you look at each group, you test them, and then you can easily find out who are the genuine Christians and who are the troublemakers. Who are the carnal Christians? Who are the ones who say they're following the law, but they're not? They've got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And, uh, you know, a lot of their kind of, their life is really no different to how it would have been if they hadn't got converted. And so we actually see that God works in the church. And there is a time when God brings the sword of the Spirit in precisely. Remember, the sword of the Spirit, it divides off soul from spirit. It divides off mere joints from marrow. It divides off death from life. And so part of the work of the sword of the Spirit amongst believers in churches is that it is the proclamation and the living of God's Word in its entirety, obviously to the extent that you understand it. No one understands it in its whole entirety, but an entire living of whatever you do understand that the effect that that has is that when you get groupings of Christians or when you get Christians in a church who are not genuine about the Lord and regardless of how they look how good they look because remember the flesh can do lots of good works be very religious you know the sinful nature can lift its hands up and sing choruses all right how do you, and now the Lord knows who are genuine, but other people don't. We can't look into each other's hearts. However, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, is the discerner of people's hearts. So the Lord knows those in a church who are merely going to get in the way. All right? Merely going to get in the way. They're not genuine. They're Christians, but they're not genuine disciples. They're not, you know, sort of genuinely saying, Lord, whatever is wrong with me, show me that I can put it right. Okay? What happens is, that the Lord basically sets them up and he divides them out. He creates a division so that those who are not genuine can be seen quite clearly. And of course, off they go. Now here we're seeing the sword of the Spirit working in the churches. And so basically, if you get the proposition... Sorry? Oh. Oh, right, okay. So basically, when you get the idea that you know when something has been done in love because nobody gets upset. Can you see how ridiculous that is? Now, precisely, 
because God wants people to follow him fully, he knows that we can only really follow him fully with each other. None of us can go it alone, all right? We need the community of the church, and that is according to the teaching of the Bible. However, as soon as you get something like a church, you get lots of Christians who come together to be part of the church. Now, in order to be a disciple, you need the church. But the trouble is that the church can attract other Christians who aren't disciples, have no intention of being disciples. They might think they are, but where they discover they're not is when they're corrected about something, can you see? A disciple someone says, Lord, show me what's wrong, I'll put it right. So he shows them what's wrong, and boy, there's, there's World War III. I'm not going to admit to that, you know, and stuff like that, all right. So the point is, a disciple needs a fellowship. But a fellowship is full of Christians. Obviously, that's what a fellowship is. Now, some of those Christians may not be disciples at all. They make the right noises, do the right things, sing the right choruses, you know, sort of like come out with the right prophecies or whatever, okay. But, so a disciple needs a church, but the last thing a disciple needs is a church which has got people in it who aren't disciples and who are just a ticking time bomb waiting to go off when God is moving. So therefore, what God does, he moves by the sword of the Spirit. There's a ticking time bomb, um, you know, like the bomb disposal unit, God comes in and he, he detonates it. He says, oh, you know, I, I, I don't care what time this is set to go off, I'm going to detonate it. And it blows up and the division has then happened. Can you see, the sword of the Spirit has come in so that those who are genuine know who they are and those who were not genuine, they know who they are. All right. Let's just remind ourselves, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and uh, to keep seeing this principle of division. Uh, because again, when you get the idea that, you know, sort of like division is of the devil, I mean, division is very often of God. And in 1 Corinthians, sorry, chapter 5, you know, when Paul talks about what do you do when you've got believers who are living in all kinds of sin that they're not prepared to put right. The principle is, verse 13, drive out the wicked person from amongst you. Divide off from them. Can you see? And this is with Christians. It's about people who are factious. We've seen in the Titus, you know, like lean away from them, avoid them, have nothing more to do with them. And all this is, is the actual dividing work of the sword of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus said that I haven't come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword, what he's basically saying is this, of course Jesus has come to bring peace. What Jesus has done is to die on the cross to bring complete reconciliation between a creation that has gone sinful and the God who has created it. The potential for peace and reconciliation is there in the cross. And that is what Jesus ultimately wants. But the problem is that that can only happen in the lives of people who are willing to confess their sins, who are willing to repent of their sins. So therefore, the message of good news to those who admit their sins is a message of antagonism to people who won't. 
So Jesus was realistic enough to know, look, I've come with an offer of peace. Peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. That is what I'm all about. The means for you to be at peace with God is here. But Jesus knew that most people, not only would they not want to get right with the Lord and follow Jesus, the point is the world hates him. So Jesus knew that even whilst his mission was to come and bring peace, he knew that the world always had been and always will be at war with him. The world hates Jesus. So therefore, although ultimately Jesus is going to bring peace, he knew that the reaction of sinners to the truth of the word of God would mean that it was only right that people know that if they're going to follow Jesus, then in the same way that that anger and that viciousness was directed at him by people who had been convicted by him but didn't want to repent, in the same way that he experienced that, we would experience that. And the interesting thing is, Jesus makes no apology for this at all. His attitude is quite simply this. Because of his love for all people, he died on the cross so that all men could be at peace with God and be saved. Now, and Jesus wants everyone to be saved. But he knows that most won't. And he knows as well that even when people do get saved, they can still be really rebellious against him. Now, his attitude then is quite simply this. Well, all right, if you refuse the offer, tough. Jesus never ever panders to those who refuse the offer, is he? I mean, the Pharisees, they refused his offer. He called them hypocrites. He berated them publicly. Can you see? And so what Jesus has done, he's come to say, I'm holding out my hands to you. I offer you peace. But on the other hand, he knows full well, but if you want war, you've got it. Is he? And that is exactly the position that God is in with this world. All right? He has offered a way for salvation and peace. But if people deny it and refuse to accept it, then what God says, I've offered you peace, but you want war? Right. You've got it. And that is why the Bible says our God is a God of war. That is why in James it says that friendship with the world is enmity against God. Can you see? Because there can never be peace between God and our sinful natures. That's why the sinful nature dies on the cross. There can be peace between us and the Lord, but not between our sinful natures. In Galatians, speaking of people who are following you know, the Lord, Paul says that the spirit is at war with the flesh. Can you see? God has offered the world a way of peace. But the world has said no. So God says, right, if you want war, you've got it, buddy. That is what God has said. And it's exactly the same with us. We know this as children, don't we, of his. That he, he loves us. But when we say no to him, he says, right, you got it. <laughs> Doesn't he? That's as a loving father. But we must remember that with the world, with the children of the devil, you know, then God is, is a, a holy and an angry God and a righteous God. But can you see the sword of the Spirit? The problem, 
Everywhere you hit up against God, you hit up against his love. Because God is love, all right? Everything he does, everything he does is motivated by his love. But the problem, the problem is the reaction of sin to that love. So therefore, wherever God's love goes, it will convict people of sin. God loves them, wants them to be saved, all right? So convict them of sin so they can realise they're sinners and be saved, all right? Or with people who are Christians, but out of fellowship, the Lord wants them in fellowship so he can bless them, so his love convicts them, all right? But the problem is that when God's convicting power hits people who aren't right with him, even though God is doing that out of love, that isn't how unrepentant sinners take it. They take it as personal attack. They take it as an offence. How, you know, how dare they? Uh, you can't hit God, so you, hit, you, you, you bash the people he's used to convict you. Is he? So basically, Jesus has come to bring a sword. And uh, you and I, if we follow Jesus... I mean, Jesus is living through us. You and I carry that sword as well. And it's the word of God, and it's living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it does mean at times all hell is going to be let loose. And it means, I mean, Jesus doesn't want anyone divided off from anyone. That's not what Jesus wants. But in a sinful world, there's not much you can do to actually prevent it because people have got free will. So Jesus doesn't want, for instance, families to be divided because one or more people are following the Lord and the rest aren't. Jesus doesn't want that, but if some people in a family are following the Lord and the rest aren't, then that can happen. And Jesus warned his disciples about it. So if we just actually read the Matthew 10, you know, where we started off with that behind us, I think we can really appreciate why Jesus said this in the context he did. And he, verse 34, he talks about this process, the sword of the Spirit. Verse 35, he talks about how even this is going to hit families, all right. Verse 36, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. You know, I, I mean, and I mean, foes. Your own, I mean, we're not talking here about people who don't like you. I mean, it's like some people, they think, oh, I'm being persecuted. When the truth of the matter is they're being such a pain, it would, you know, sort of like take a saint not want, you know, to not want to belt them on the nose. Can you see what I mean? I'm talking, this is as a result of following Jesus, right? And then in verse 37, look, Jesus has given that warning that this could happen to you. Look, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Because the point is that when God is using us in such a way, there is always the temptation. Well, if I stop being the means of these people being convicted, then they're aggression and anger towards me will stop. That's the temptation. If I stop standing on the truth I'm standing on, then maybe the attack will go down a bit. I.e., the world is not going to bother to have a go at a carnal Christian. All right? 
But what Jesus says in that context is that when that is happening, the choice is directly between him and the people who you want to appease. It doesn't matter who it is, and it doesn't matter how bad it is. If we're seeing reaction as a result of using the sword of the Spirit, then the choice we make is between faithfulness to Jesus or bowing and scraping to the people who have been convicted and hence reacting in that particular way. And, and, and it's another area where it's just saying that Jesus comes first. Regardless of how tough it is, regardless of the implications of it, or whatever, Jesus comes first. And our ultimate loyalty is to him. And on that, there can be no compromise whatsoever, even at the family level. And, you know, here we have Jesus stating it absolutely explicitly. Um, <clears throat> I mean, just go up, still in Matthew chapter 10, uh, just go up to verse 24. Now look at this. A disciple <coughs> is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So what Jesus is saying, look, you've seen everything they've called me. They've run out of things. I mean, they told, they called Jesus a demoniac. They called him a madman. They called him a drunkard. They called him a glutton. You know, I mean, basically, if there was something nasty to call him, they thought of it. All right? But Jesus says, look, if that's what they've called me, how much worse things are they going to call you? Now, really, Jesus is saying, no, look, you know, come on, fair do, lads. You, you want to follow me. I'm just telling you what it might mean. This is, this is the, the small print, all right? It's no use if you start following me in a couple of years' time, saying, oh, Lord, but I've lost all my friends and people are being horrible about me in their rumours and it's not fair. Because he says, look, I told you that. That was the entry price, if you like. You know, can you see? It goes without saying that if we follow Jesus, we will suffer with him. And it's because of this sword of the Spirit that through our lives, if so be, we are disciples. Through our lives, that sword is going to be convicting other people. One, if they're not Christians, but two, if they are Christians, but they are not right with God and there is all manner of sin that they're not willing to deal with in their lives. So, you know, therefore, Jesus came to bring a sword and in, in some ways, I mean, obviously, this, Jesus himself is the sword of the Spirit. But, I mean, given that Jesus is living through us, I mean, really, that, in some ways, that makes us the sword of the Spirit. Can you see? Because we are the means of Jesus speaking. And we are the means of Jesus, you know, sort of like being through us and existing through us. So he got it and we're going to get it. So um, we might as well get used to it. There's not going to be a great deal of peace in the sense that Jesus is talking about here. Uh, not peace, but, but, but warfare. And, and that's what we're, we're in. So I don't know whether that explains yeah, the, the sword of the spirit. Yeah, that's